animal goes down, no excitement at all until they start walking up to it. And then all of a sudden, their voice gets so high that they get on even a If they're carrying a bowie knife or a blade that's 8, 10 inches long, I can tell you they do not have very much experience. By golly, let's let's trap and relocate grizzlies and cougars and and downtown Los Angeles would be a perfect place to do it. (laughs) It's told in parables, and you learn from those stories. And basically, to me, that's one of the things that we're finally, I think, getting back into. It has benefited maybe 10 to 100 times fold what you've done for, you know, just that one individual species. And we don't get that word out enough. This is Larry Weiss, and I'm a wildlife biologist, hunter, conservationist, and I'm proud to have this campfire talk with Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. There's a lot of people that can pull the trigger on an animal but they don't know what to do with it after. If you would have told me that a stupid turkey was going to make me get that excited, I would have told you you were crazy. It's just a skill that you have to perfect over a lot of years. Hunting is a tribal activity. We've lost the tribe. We can't even hunt together anymore. Well, the people that are anti-hunting are usually pro-abortion. So kill the people, save the animals. I just remember riding my horse back to camp with the northern lights and the moose behind me, and I'm like, this is why I've done this. This is as cool as an experience as I will get. Hi, this is Jim Shockey. This is Sam Sohol, the public land bus guy. Hi, I'm Kimmy Greentree. Hi, this is South Cox with the Western Bowhunter Podcast. Hey, this is Ben Dedamonte, a.k.a. Shed Crazy. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. All right, y'all. So getting on to today's episode, I am so excited to have the one and only, y'all may know him as Mr. Whitetail, but Larry Wysoon on the podcast. Uh, Larry is a hunter, a conservationist, a conservationist, I don't know, whatever the word is, a wildlife (laughs) biologist, and just a fun guy to talk to. He's, He's steeped in the outdoors. And I'm so excited to have you on. Larry, thank you so much for joining me today. I am truly honored to be on this podcast with you. I'll tell you what, we had a conversation a little bit before we started this thing and and got to learn a little bit about you. And and, uh, the more I learned about you, the more I'm intrigued with where you came from. And what I really like is where you're going. It's, you know, it's been a weird path. And it is, I... If you had talked to me six, five, six years ago before I had really gotten into all this and told me where I was going to be now, you know, we, like you said, we were talking. I'm in a in a dinky hotel somewhere in <laughs> in, in Rock Springs, Wyoming, on running from uh, Utah and Colorado up to Montana, and 
I don't know who I am. <laughs> who is this person that's doing this nonsense? You know what? I can really appreciate that. Uh, Over the years, I've traveled a lot as a wildlife biologist and did a lot of speaking and, you know, the TV stuff and, of course, wrote for a lot of different publications. So I stayed on the road almost continually sometimes for six, eight weeks at a time. And I'd wake up during the night and I'd go, uh, where am I? More importantly, where is the restroom in this place? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's always, I, you know, I got, I got all this stupid technology, all the like Amazon echo house stuff at home. So I'm used to waking up and, you know, being like, Alexa, turn on the lights. And when you're in a hotel room, that doesn't work so well, especially when (laughs) typically there's like, one light switch across the room and you got to bump into six things before you can find it to get to that bathroom. <laughs> well, from what I remember, Rock Springs too, up in Wyoming, I've got a dear friend up there that lives with Cody, Jay, uh, Jim Zumbo for years has been, or been around a long time like I have. And, and there are not too many, uh, uh, staying facilities, if you want to call them that in that Rock Spring area from what <laughs> I remember. It's, uh, it's not too bad, but yeah, there's, uh, you're limited to a, a handful of select options. <laughs> I have I have stayed in worse places. Exactly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I would love it if maybe to just start out, you could give us a little history of Larry Wysoon. How did you how did you get introduced to hunting and conservation and and all of this? When you get right down to it from the hunting and the outdoors with the fishing, I, I grew up in a very much an outdoor family. And my dad and granddad carried me around on their backs when I was in diapers on their hunting and fishing <laughs> trips. Now, back then where I grew up in Texas, we had deer. But if you saw a deer, you were a hero for months in advance. And so I kind of grew up in that situation of my dad loved to run coon hounds, but Granddad loved to fish more than anything else. And so to be very frank with him, when I finally started grade school, I thought I'd died and gone to hell. And, you know, oh my God, I can't go hunting and fishing every day because I could just leave the back door and, and be out in the country uh, or carry a 22 or whatever I wanted to. And so over the years after that, I realized that, hey, if, if I've got to do something, I might as well try to make a living in something that I really enjoy. So ended up with a wildlife degree in Texas A&M University and actually went to work for the Wildlife Disease Project with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department doing disease and nutrition work before I, as an undergraduate, then worked for as a biologist for uh, several years for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, then set up my own consulting business and did that. And along the way, just loved to read, loved to write. My mom would read to me when my dad worked in the oil field from field and stream and outdoor life and kind of instilled that love of hunting outdoors and writing and reading, if you will. And, and uh, one thing just kind of led to another. And then as it worked out, I just had to be in the right places at the right times at certain times, particularly in terms with white-tailed deer. Uh, we saw a revolution happen with white-tailed deer in the 1970s, where people all of a sudden went from deer hunting to where it just was, eh, well, maybe I'll go shoot a deer to people that became really, really serious about it. That opened the door to a lot of the management things that we were able to develop as wildlife biologists during those years. So, you know, again, it just kind of comes down to being at the right place, being at the right time, having love for the outdoors and uh, and truly appreciating the outdoors and trying to improve it where we can and to try to make it available to others, I suspect is probably as good a way of putting it. 
So you mentioned back in the 1970s, there was a, a bit of a revolution in whitetail hunting. What prompted that, do you think? I think a lot of it, we saw a decline in hunting. We saw a decline in the quality of the animals in terms of older age animals kind of thing. And it really kind of started in South Texas. Al Brothers and Murphy Ray, both biologists that I knew well or know well, uh, wrote a book called Pred- uh, Producing Quality Whitetails. And that kind of set the stage for some of the things that followed in, in a lot of the other States all of a sudden we're realizing, hey, our deer populations are really kind of weird. They're out of skew as far as what the age structure should be, and and hunting opportunities were kind of going by the wayside in, in terms of whitetail deer. And along that time too, we started seeing the whitetail deer really increase in range across North America. Uh, we always maybe they got a little bit more protection, maybe they got a little bit more food throughout the year. There were several factors kind of came to play to where. It was always kind of the America's deer, but all of a sudden it became the American deer kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, that kind of led to that revolution. And then along the way, too, you saw uh, publication like North American Whitetail crop up and uh, Buckmasters and Deer and Deer Hunting magazines. And uh, there were a lot of things that kind of led that kind of carried that thing forward. You know, I Whitetail's always been one of those things that are very interesting to me because it's so many people take a very I guess, personal interest in cultivating whitetail versus you look at something like mule deer or elk. You don't see, it's weird. You know, you don't see like, I guess, quality elk management association, um, Q E M A Um, or, you know, it's a very different, I don't know. It's a very interesting attitude. And I think maybe there's a lot of that has to do with there's a lot more private land in whitetail areas and things like that. But it's, it's just, it's, it's always been fascinating to me because you see so many individuals or, you know, certain smaller groups of people really focusing on herds of whitetail and managing them and and things like that. I think part of that comes from the fact that they're more widespread than anything else. And as you mentioned, there's, there's both public and private lands that be, are available in terms of hunting. And, and I think people start looking at the fact like, oh my gosh, what can we do if we let this deer get a little bit older in the presence of, of a, of a good type of habitat? And one of the things, uh, kind of digress and move forward at the same time. One of the things that I learned a long time ago that whenever we, work the habitat to improve it for whitetail deer or maybe it's turkeys or even elk or mule deer or some of the other things the habitat improved and as habitat improved there was a greater variety of plants followed by a greater variety of animals so anything that was done to try to promote that quality of the habitat for whitetail deer all wildlife kind of benefited from it and I think that too has kind of played into it and uh, I mean, I worked with places where when we started, you had a monoculture essentially of vegetation and you had one or two species there. And then when you started changing that habitat to where you had a greater variety of vegetation, all of a sudden you saw a lot more butterflies. You saw rats, you saw mice, you saw birds of prey, you saw a lot more songbirds, you saw a lot more game birds. And so I think that has been part of this in terms of the interest in whitetail deer. That may be secondarily, but at the same time, I think it becomes very important to those people that are sitting out there and hunting and 
my God, there's a bird over there. There's a raccoon there. Here comes a possum. There's a skunk. There's a fox. <laughs> there's a coyote. Oh my gosh. There's a hawk. There's an owl, you know, and look, Oh my, what a beautiful songbird kind of thing. Uh, so I think it all kind of plays into that when you get right down to it. Well, I think we focus so much a lot on the actual species we're conserving and, you know, we, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to say we necessarily forget this, but we don't promote and we don't talk about it enough to where, all this work we do, whether it's elk, mule deer, whitetail, ducks, the turkey. I mean, you could list off a hundred species that hunter conservationists have focused on. And we tend to focus on those populations. We'd be like, okay, yeah, look at all this great work we did for wild turkeys in the U.S. But we forget that all of that work for wild turkeys improves habitat, which yeah. then improves, like you said, all of these other species. And it's, I don't know why we don't talk about that more. Unfortunately, we don't. I, one of the things that I hope to do in the next several years is to bring that a little bit more to the forefront because, honestly, those things that we've done, as you just mentioned, for those targeted game species, of course they've benefited from it. But if you look at all the other wildlife and the habitat itself, a healthy habitat, it has benefited maybe 10 to 100 times fold what you've done for you know, just that one individual species. And, and unfortunately, like you say, we don't get that word out enough as far as what we're doing in terms of really good things for wildlife and habitat as hunters and conservationists. It's, I think it's just, it's not quite as sexy up front to talk about. <laughs> is, you're is the you're right. It's not. That's a big part of it. It's, you know, it's like one thing to say, oh, look at these elk populations we're restoring in this state that hasn't had them in, you know, a hundred years or, or whatever versus, hey, look, rats are back. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. There, there is that lack of sexiness involved in all that. But when you get right down to it, it's still a fact. And I think that's a fact that we miss. Uh, promoting to particularly those people who maybe don't quite understand why hunting is so important in terms of overall wildlife and the habitat itself kind of thing. And again, I think that's something that we need to try to push a little bit more because if we can, I think people have a better understanding as to why hunting is important. And I think they may be a little bit more supportive of, of hunting in that instance. Absolutely. So you have done quite a bit in like you you we we you mentioned some of it kind of in the intro you've done quite a bit in the the world of hunting whether it's it's writing or television or this that you've kind of i i would i would not hesitate to say that you're a recognizable face in the world of hunting well thank you it is rather uh recognizable <laughs> <laughs> particularly since my red beard has turned white uh, there you go i i I, though I don't know what to do, you know, you're not wearing the cowboy hat right now. And I don't, I don't know how to feel about this. I almost didn't recognize you when you logged in. I'll I'll tell you my hat's just around the corner. My wife, bless her heart is a true Southern lady. And when I walk into the house wearing my hat, the first thing she'll say is that hat doesn't belong in your head inside the house. So I I learned over the years to keep it from getting snatched off my head. (laughs) Take it off, put it on the hall tree when I walk in. I will, you know what? I I will give you that one hundred percent, and I I am feeling a little guilty wearing my my ball no, cap inside no. right now. <laughs> Heavens no! So you have spent a lot of time 
in the hunting industry, I'm sure you have gotten to talk to and hunt with and enjoy time with some of just the most, uh, most incredible people around, uh, just from everything I've seen. I would just love to hear about some of your maybe favorite times out in the, out in the field with just with, with others. I'll, I'll start with, uh, the fact that I have two daughters and both my daughters hunted with me when they were small, they still do as a matter of fact. And when we first started out hunting with them, we're fortunate. We live in Texas. We could start hunting them early. And what I would do when we go to deer hunting, I would take everything in terms of cookies, candy, chips, everything that their mom would not really say, you know, <laughs> you can have this all the time kind of thing. And so we made it a great amount of fun and, being there with my daughters when they shot their first deer was out of this world good. I remember sitting there and, and uh, I hunted quite a bit to that point. I'm sitting there and I'm glassing and this little buck comes up, an older buck with little antlers, perfect for a first deer as far as I'm concerned. Without realizing it, I'm sitting there going, <gasps> <gasps> just almost hyperventilating and about to pass out kind of thing. And I feel this tugging on my shirt and I look down at my daughter and she goes, Daddy, Daddy, are you okay? Are you having a heart attack? You know, and I was, but it was the best kind of heart attack there possibly could ever be. And, and of course, they're very calm and is, is all – Females of the human species tend to be. They're, they're natural-born killers. They really are. They don't get excited. You or I may see an animal, and all of a sudden we're going, we're hyperventilating. We're so excited we can't hardly release an arrow, or we release an arrow, and it goes 80 degrees off of where it's supposed to. And, and the human female, she will just naturally, without anything going on at all, pull the trigger, animal goes down, no excitement at all until they start walking up to it. And then all of a sudden, their voice gets so high and they get on even And their knees get weak. And I've often said that if I could have one female trait, it would be it be that because I have to talk myself down, saying just pick a spot, you know, just relax, pull the trigger, put the animal down humanely as possible. Other times it, my both I've got four grand four grandsons and one granddaughter and all all five of them shot their first deer sitting on my lap. And so to me, and of course put the animal down immediately. I mean, they were just unbelievable in terms of I'm sitting there about to have that you know, heart attack kind of thing. And they're very calmly put the animals down. But uh, over the years, I've had the opportunity to, to hunt with so many great people out there. The, the, the list is, is endless. I've got, got to hunt with guys like Jim Zumbo who lives there in Wyoming. Very, very, very dear friend, and and um, uh, he and Abba and get together as often as we can to hunt or fish, and and some of the stories I, I love there. I, I watched Mister Zumbo one time. He loves turkey hunting, by the way, and he's crazy about it, uh, unbelievably crazy. Well, we were down to South Texas, down in the lower part of the country, and we're heard a turkey, and and uh, we dropped Jim off, and we didn't hear a shot. And normally we're going, you know, my God. Zumbo is going to call his bird up, kill it, no doubt. <laughs> so we we wait about you know about an hour, and we drive back where we drop drop Jim off, and where there we dropped him off there were like three barbed wire fences that all came together. Here's Mister Zumbo stuck with his clothes <laughs> on, on, on the bars. <laughs> saying some severe select words about not coming to help him and those kind of 
things with this blankety black bird. Jay, Jay Wayne is from Alabama and one time was one of the preeminent outdoor writers out there. Still is. He just doesn't write quite as much as what he used to. And, and uh, I remember several hunts with, with him where he, <laughs> we got after a turkey one day and I'm not a huge turkey hunter, but we were hunting in, in New Mexico and oh, just east of Clayton in some of that volcanic country and, and we heard a bird way up on top of the hill and so no question about it, we're going to go up this absolutely 90-degree <laughs> vertical bluff. Uh, and with a couple of ledges, we get to a point we can't go up, we can't go down. And finally, we figure a way up there, get up there. And by the time we finally get to the top course, the, the bird is is totally gone. And, and uh, we get up there, and as soon as we get up there, we notice there's a road that runs right across the very top of it. And as we just kind of stand there looking around, we're – griping and complaining to each other about what we just did. And the outfitter drives up and he says, I can't believe you guys tried to crawl up that vertical bluff. I've never seen anybody do anything like it. He said, why didn't y'all just walk over about a hundred yards to walk up the road? You could have killed the bird. <laughs> Boy, Wayne it, it, it tells a story too that I wasn't there, but uh, he used to say, he used to write for Turkey Call Magazine and he, he made the statement years ago. He said there'd been a lot more turkeys killed by a size 12 boot than have been killed by a size 12 shotgun. <laughs> and uh, he was on a hunt somewhere up in the, I can't remember, somewhere close to the Black Hills. I don't remember which state it was in, but up in, in that part of the country, kind of where you are now. And uh, he called this bird in, shot this bird, and, and uh, he was just so proud of himself, you know, as you tend to be, and tagged the bird and threw it over his shoulder. And he he walks probably about two or 300 yards, and he realizes, hey, he looks down there, and he goes, my shoe's untied. You know, I, I can't have that. So he lays the bird down, reaches down, and ties it, retie his shoe. When he does, the gobbler gets up and flies off. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not sure I would have loved to have been there if somebody had ended up killing that bird a little bit later because apparently only just doesn't even hear Jay Wayne Fierce's tag on the, oh my <laughs> gosh. the lake kind of thing. So, but you know, to me, hunting is, is is a lot to do with with the people who you get to spend time with and and in the field and and sitting around at night telling stories and, and listening to other stories and, and learning from them and you know and, and occasionally not letting the total truth get in the way of a good story <laughs> i tell you what i uh i got my chance to go to my first deer camp uh, right. probably right around yeah. this time i was gonna say i think november yeah it would have been november last year perfect and, uh, you know, got invited out with some good buddies and, you know, most of what I've done has been mostly solo, but I've, you know, been out in the mountains and, and this was such a different experience of just coming back to the, coming back to base camp and sitting around the fire and telling stories and enjoying a little bit of whiskey and absolutely just, <laughs> and, you know, it's one of, one of my favorite podcasts I've recorded was from that camp and, you know, we all just sat around the campfire having a few beers and and I just got to sit back and listen to these stories and take it all in and we pretty much had whiskey until somebody fell out of their chair and that's when we ended the podcast <laughs> <laughs> you know to me those are such great times and I am I'm thrilled to hear you say that because of the fact I think sometimes with the podcast that we do every once in a while you know I do DSC's Untamed Heritage podcast there on, on Waypoint. And 
sometimes they have to be a little bit regimented because the guests that you're dealing with are the topic matter that you're dealing with. And to me, those were, which you just described, to me, those are so much more fun to do. And <laughs> I love listening to them. I'll be very honest with you. To me, those are the favorite things. And whenever I can find one where somebody's doing that, you can bet I am going to be listening to that podcaster every opportunity that I get. <laughs> you know, it's just... You can only listen to the, you know, like we were talking earlier, you can only listen to the top 10 tips for hunting whitetail so many times before you're hearing the same thing over and over and over again. But, you know, just hearing stories about Jim Zumbo tangled up in barbed wire for an hour, cursing it y'all. I mean, it, his, his, his language can be, very descriptive at times and very colorful. Particularly <laughs> <laughs> in that instant. Oh my gosh. I I tell you what, there's been a couple there's been a couple of times hunting solo where I'm on some I'm on some leased land that's got some barbed wire fence on it. And I'm going to I'm going to cross this. And I have that moment where the pants get a little bit stuck and I start to lose my balance. And I start wondering how long it's going to be before another hunter comes along to find my butt. Because, <laughs> well, in that instance, it was about an hour. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, why? Why is? Why are we not hearing a shot? Jim normally calls that thing in right away. <laughs> oh, I'm just oh, picturing boy. how that goes. But hunting camps are, are so special as far as I'm concerned. I, I, over the years, I've had the opportunity as, as a hunter, as a writer, as TV, all the other stuff that we've done, as a wildlife biologist, and even at a time in times past, occasionally as a guide or an outfitter. And also, in all those years, I think I've only run across two people whose company I would not just almost leave this podcast right now to go spend time with. And those other two weren't quite that bad, but they, you know, they were just, they were totally different. Uh, and, and quite frankly, they were know-it-alls. And yeah. I'll, uh, one of the way back up a little bit on these guys, one of the things I noticed when both these guys came to camp, and I, this is one of the way that I judge somebody that when I'm in a camp, if they're carrying a knife, if they're carrying a Bowie knife, or a blade that's eight, 10 inches long, I can tell you they do not have very much experience. Now, if they're carrying a, you know, a blade that's two to three inches long or a pocket knife, they probably know what they're doing with it. But I've noticed over the years <laughs> that the, the, the least, the less the experience the hunter has, the longer the knife, the longer the, the hunter's been in the woods, that blade has a tendency to come shorter and shorter and shorter all the time. I'm I am writing that one down right now. Uh, the less experienced a hunter is, the longer the, longer the knife. <laughs> uh, I like I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> you need to you need to have like uh you know that on a t-shirt with like your signature underneath right there is is the we might have, we might have to visit about that have, have a little business meeting after this is all over with <laughs> i mean i'm in that mindset because I, I was i was making uh making t-shirts and ball caps i was ah. i've been out fishing fishing for the past two days with a couple of guys uh and we you know you're sitting there you got no cell reception you may be having a few too many millers while you're on the river and uh you just 
start talking about absolute nonsense and somebody will say something right. and you're like, man, I need to sell t-shirts or stickers that say that. <laughs> and I swear we had a, I, we needed to write them down because we probably had a notebook of them by the time we were done and nobody's going to find them nearly as funny as we do, but, uh, <laughs> oh, but that, that's beside the point. Anyway, since you're in Wyoming, have you been up into the big horns, uh, and fish for the brook trout up there? Cause I think there's a, from whatever Zumbo told me, there's a, a substantial limit on it. And those streams up there, they're only about a foot and a half wide and about eight inches deep and need little potholes. But those fish are out of this world delicious. Oh, see, now you can't be telling me things like that. When I got to when I got to get up and up and on a on a schedule here, now I'm going to have to come back. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can, you can almost any of those little streams there in, in the in the forest area on the Bighorns, you will find brook trout in great numbers. It's just 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 so much fun. I mean, and I, I can't remember. I don't want to say the exact number, but I want to say it's like it's either like ten or sixteen is the the bag limit in that area. Oh man, I'm going to have to. Maybe uh, get a little one day permit and, and spend an hour on my on my way up to Wyoming or on my way up to Montana right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it seems appropriate because I've been fishing for the last five days, and I think this would be the only day because uh, and I'll be fishing for the next five days probably. So I think this would be the only day I'm not fishing. So I might as well just keep the streak going here in Wyoming. Without a doubt. Yeah, you might as well just go do that, by golly. <laughs> you know, you mentioned a while ago, you mentioned to me that the, the writing, like the 10 top tips when it comes to whitetail deer, mule deer, you know, selection of this kind of thing. To me, most of those are really boring to write. And they're really boring, even more so to read as far as I'm concerned. Uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed doing is, you know, if you look at the Bible, it's told in parables and it's told in stories and you learn from those stories. And basically to me, that's one of the things that we're finally, I think getting back into years ago, there was a lot of me and Joe type stories. And then it went to almost a recipe type thing when it came to writing. And now it seems like we're going back again to some of the writing where it's, it's maybe it's either very sharp, very concise, with a lot of information into a small package, or there's a story where there's a, a really good read, but you learn something in the process. So, and to me, those latter are so much more fun to read than just kind of a recipe kind of thing. And they're fun, much more fun to write. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I, you know, I, I've never heard it put that way, but I, I like the idea of, I don't know, to simplify that down, the, the ideas and our passion for hunting being shared as parables, not just described we talked before you learn so much more from people's stories because yeah again you can get the obvious stuff from you know these top 10 lists or these super tactical podcasts but you know there's certain things you only pick up just when you're sitting around a campfire with someone you're right. listening to them talk about you know this one time they were 
they were out and you know, who knows what happened. And, uh, and there's this crazy story and, and there's this little nugget in there that you would have never gotten in a million years otherwise, other than from that story. Exactly. And, and to me, you, you learn, you have a tendency to remember those as well too. You know, you might have a list of t- 10 top ways to do something. Chances are you're not going to remember that list per se, but if there was something in there that was told in terms of a story that caught your attention and maintained your attention, you know, you can, you can really, you'll remember those in the future. Uh, we were talking about Park Bar a while ago. Uh, John Wood, when you get right down to, we talked about White Tail Dare. I want to go back to that. When you get right down to it, years ago, a guy named John Wooders who wrote for Peterson's Hunting and Jerry Smith, who was a wildlife photographer, uh, for the first time ever, Jerry Smith showed photographs of what a mature whitetail looked like. That goes back about to the same time where we're talking about when all this interest started. And John Wooders started writing about mature whitetail as opposed to just going out and shooting a whitetail. And they're totally different. Those deer, when they get to be up north about three and a half, four and a half, it's like they walk up to a, a, a reflective pond and look down into it and they see a big set antlers. And all of a sudden, this big doofus becomes this super secretive kind of a critter. Totally different. Where I was going with the barbed wire thing, little things that you remember. Uh, I remember John sitting around a campfire with him one time down in the brush country, South Texas. And he was telling me about he was going through, he was crawling through a fence. And all of a sudden, he looked over to the other side of the fence that he was going to. And a big white-tailed deer was standing there looking at him. He thought, my <laughs> God, what am I going to do? He said, that deer is going to run. He said, what I did, he said, as I was coming through the fence, I grabbed my hat off my head. He said, I tossed it up in the air. He said, now watch that deer's eyes while follow that hat. When he, while he was following that hat, he says, I got my gun up and I ended up shooting him. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a story that I remember from, you know, we, we may have been drinking a fair amount of safe water that night, but that's <laughs> what I remember. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm a little, I don't even know what to say because that is the most ridiculous thing, but you know, it would work. <laughs> yeah. in, in that instance, you know, it's like somebody saying, I can't believe that would work. And, you know, that's the, what are the chances of that happening? Well, in that instance, it was 100%. You know, another time it may be 50% or 0%. But, you know, you try things. And it, it, where I was going with all this, it, I've written a lot of these, you know, top ideas for this or that, that kind of thing. But when it comes to hunting, the one best advice you can give somebody is, you know, what, 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 how do I learn? What, what do I need to do is to go hunt. Go hunt. Don't look for excuses not to go when it's too hot, it's too cold or snowy or it's whatever. That individual that you're hunting for, maybe that's his favorite time. And by going out and getting, learning what you can from everybody, gleaning what you can from writing internet stories, TV, whatever, podcast, you know, take that information, but then also go out and learn by yourself, learn on your own as well too. Uh, because, and then try different things, uh, just like John grabbed the hat and threw it up in there and it worked, you know, if he'd have tried to just continue crawling through, I'm sure that deer would have jumped and run and, and be gone. So, you know, dare to be different sometimes a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, with great risk comes great reward, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. I think I, you know, I'm such a studier and such a researcher and, and things. And I, I've talked about this probably before on the podcast. And I feel like I've passed up way too many 
smaller opportunities to just go out and learn whether that's little fishing trips here and there, because I'm focused on, on something, something really big and I need to need to practice and study more for it. When in reality, if I just spent a little more time in the woods, yeah, maybe it's not as big of a hunt. I probably would have had a higher aptitude for success at that point. Well, you, you'll, you you learn, you know, we learn from our mistakes. You know, if, if you, well, I, I, there's some, several things I've done again and again and again, and you think I would have learned by it the first or second time, but I make the same mistake, you know, <laughs> again. But every time I go to the field or every time I spend time visiting with somebody, I try to learn something from them. Uh, I, I'm fascinated that where your background is and where you come to at this point. Why do you think you miss you're new to hunting? Uh, why do you think hunting was so fascinating to you? It's, it's weird. It's just, it's one of those things. And I mean, I, I hate to say it sounds so cliche, uh, but I feel like it was already part of me that I was figuring out. Um, you know, I, I got into I got into teaching firearms marksmanship and I've always been and I've told this story a few times but I've always been the type of person I have to have purpose when I'm behind what I'm doing. And so once I started punching paper and got good enough at it to where okay, I could consistently punch the paper where I wanted to, I started losing interest and needed to have purpose behind that. And then right. I started getting into hunting and once I really discovered hunting it felt like I just discovered a piece of me that I just didn't know existed. And I, it, I hate saying that, but it, cause it sounds so cliche, but it's, it's true. It's the absolute truth. I discovered something about myself that I just never knew was there. I think that's so very important. I think we as humans, as a human species reflect just exactly what you said right there in that, that hunter gatherer is there within us. Some people deny it. And we, go to great extent to try to deny it. And other people will go, wait a minute, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe I ought to try this kind of thing. And then there's some people that, you know, they're just like with me, I probably didn't have a whole lot of choice in the matter because <laughs> I grew up in that situation where I was there, where it was always, we always hunted, we always fished. I can't remember somebody said, do you remember your first hunting trip? And I go, nope. What about your first fish trip? Nope. You know, it was, it was always there. But I also think what you just said is that bit of being a hunter, of being an outdoors person, of, of being a fisherman. Uh, I think it's within us innately, and it's up to us to, to open that door to others and some are to open the door to where that individual can open that door for himself. Well, you know, taking it back a little bit to and almost consolidating a few different things we talked about you know, we talk about how it's, it's, you know, I want to say again, it's in our blood and you've been on, uh, you're familiar with the blood origins project with Robbie and, uh, you've been, oh, absolutely. I've been on in the blood with Robbie. Yeah. And we talk, you know, we talk about, okay, hunting it, it's in our blood. And, but we were also talking about, uh, presenting things in terms of parables. And I think Robbie and those guys do such an incredible job at that. Like, you look at these little, these short stories they present and that's effectively what they are. They're, I mean, yeah, they're true stories and they're about 
true people and things that happened, but it it's really feels like almost a parable in that, in that little, you know, five to 10 minute piece. He does such a fantastic job of drawing that out of people. Uh, I really admire what he's done and what he continues to do. Uh, hopefully he will continue doing that long into the future because I think too, it's, it's opened the door. If somebody will listen to those, whether they're a hunter or not, or, outdoor person or even hate hunting, hate animals, whatever. I think if they'll listen to some of those, open that little, little, the chink of armor that they've got in themselves, you know, and allow that part of their soul and their heart to come out a little bit and go, wait a minute, you know, there's something behind all this. Maybe, you know, maybe I wouldn't enjoy it. Maybe I would, but how am I ever going to know if I had? You know, there's certain people that present things in such a, fantastic concise way but then they also they also do it in such a disarming way almost where i'm trying to you know trying to think of the best way to describe it but it's just it takes it takes you by surprise a little bit it's not that that typical straightforward approach and i feel like robbie with the blood origins project is fantastic uh shane mahoney with conservation visions is another incredible person like you sat there you I mean, it doesn't help that the both of them have these like mesmerizing voices that you just can't help but listen to. <laughs> exactly. Both of them, you know, with this face right. and their voice and slight accent and why I've listened to you for an hour and I haven't even realized it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who else? I mean, from your perspective, who else? Uh, who, who are some other people that really embrace this? this way of presenting hunting, like who would you hold up as an incredible example of, of this? Uh, some of the guys that have now been around with meat eater for a while have, have opened the door. I think a lot of different ways to various people and some of the, uh, Oh gosh, the two guys that you mentioned, I think have, have done a lot. They're kind of personal heroes as far as I'm concerned when it comes to that particular field or that, that segment of it. But there, there's a bunch of other people out there that we probably don't even know. You know, they're doing the same kind of thing on a very minor scale. And, and all of us have the potential of being heroes to somebody, whether we realize it or not. And I think that is something that we need to always keep somewhere within our, our thoughts. You know, what I do, it, it's going to affect somebody else or going to, affect somebody else's thoughts, not necessarily about me, but about a particular topic or subject. So uh, I think there are probably a lot of those folks out there when you get right down to it. We all have the potential to be that way. Mm. If if you could take kind of everything we've talked about or or just bring something to life about hunting or conservation if you had to distill it down and, and say, if there's anything you wanted to get across about hunting and conservation to everyone listening, what would, what would that be? One of the things we can never forget that most all life on earth is dependent upon the death of another organism, whether we like that or not. But to me, hunting is important in so many different ways and it's hard to put one little thing onto it, but It's very important to maintain habitat, to control populations. There's also a lot of things that are psychologically important as far as hunting is concerned, I think, to various people as well, to almost all people. And I think that for the most part, everybody that I've ever been around that's been in the field hunting, 
they've all been there for the right purposes. It's, it's to, it's okay to hunt. It's, it's not a, it's nothing that's wrong. You're doing all these great things to help the animals, to help not just the target animals, to help the habitat as well too. And so I think it's the main thing is to just kind of maintain an an open mind, be a good listener, even to those folks who are uh, maybe anti-hunting, maybe something we can learn from them as well too. And I learned a long time ago, too, that sometimes just to listen to somebody like that and maybe just make a comment here or there, that you get them to thinking. And to me, that's a big part of it as well, too. So kind of talk to circles there just a little bit. There, To me, there is no one particular thing that you can put your thumb, finger on when it comes to why hunting is important. I I want to echo what you just said right there, because I think that is an important key that we tend to, I think one, we accuse anti-hunters of doing, but we don't always reflect ourselves is, is listening. Um, you know, we always like to say, Oh, they're just so unreasonable. They're just screeching at us, this, that, and the other is a lot of that. But I don't think we're always the best at sitting down and listening to their point of view. We're always ready with our answers to talk over them and, some of the best conversations I've had are when I've sat and listened and waited for them to ask questions about something rather than talking over them. And I, I don't think I've necessarily converted anyone from being a vegan to, you know, going on their first hunting trip. But I think I've successfully been able to give people an understanding of what hunting actually is that it's not just a bunch of rednecks walking out into the woods with semi-autos blowing away everything they see. I I think that's so important to do that. You know, if you look through civilization from way back when, not a hundred percent of the people were hunters ever. I mean, that's never been the case. And the hunters were much more revered years ago because they were often the primary providers of protein. So some of that has changed a little bit. But again, it comes down to, I think, very much listening and, like I say, not shouting over them and not going, oh, my God, you know, you're totally ridiculous. You don't have any idea what's going on in this world. Maybe that's the way you feel, but that's not the way that we need to portray ourselves in these instances. Let's, let's be a little bit, listeners, let's be a little bit more understanding. And I think if we are, I think maybe in some instances, there's some people I've learned a long time ago just to, just to avoid. You're not going to, nothing, they're not going to listen to anything you say. And it's kind of like years ago, I'd crawl on a plane and I'd try not to look like a hunter. And then I thought, boy, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, so I made it a point to not be, not wear bloody clothes or anything like that. But, you know, <laughs> try to uh, open the, a conversation with, with somebody. And I learned that, you know, there, there's a few people who are very staunch onto hunters. There's a lot of people that aren't. And so I would open for questions, if you will. I'd make a comment to somebody and and hope that they responded with a question. And over the years of doing that, uh, not only on airplanes, but in airports, but in, you know, just in, in, in a gathering of people, uh, not that I've converted a lot of people to hunting, but I think I've converted them to be a much more open-minded and to have a little bit better understanding why hunting is important from a social aspect, from a biological aspect, you know, from an economic back, that, that aspect, all those things which play importantly as far as hunting is concerned. Because 
we, we know that as long as there is some kind of economic value on something, people will protect it or people will try to manage for it properly. And, and basically that's what we've, we've done through some of these situations. I've, I've been fortunate to be in Africa in areas uh, where the only African elephants were within the center of a national park. Interestingly, if you look at where the elephants, this will bring those up, if you look where the elephants exist in Africa, 90% of the total elephant population exists in those countries where there's hunting. So it, it goes back to the kind of the economic thing. And if we can kind of let people know some of those kind of things, if they will just listen and we listen to them, you know, you can have somebody go, well, you guys are killing all the elephants or whatever the species. And you go, well, yeah, you're right. We do. But it, this is why it's important to the local communities and all those kind of things. But do you realize that, the vast majority of elephants these days live in countries where there is hunting because they're, they're protected. So, I mean, again, it's, it's one of those things of listening and then maybe just even telling the story about how I was in Africa where my gosh, there's this little family out there and they're living in a little hut and they've got one little plot of ground that's maybe half an acre the size of somebody's backyard. Their entire livelihood depends upon that little plot of ground of not being destroyed. They've got to walk two miles to get water every day kind of thing. And, and when you have too many elephants in there, guess what they do? They eat the crops and they eat the, the, the you know, drink the water, knock down the houses and, and how would you react kind of thing? So a lot of different ways to approach a lot of different things. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you talk about, I mean, you want to get someone's goat going, you know, you uh, start talking about African hunting and, and that's right. You'll even talk to some, some staunch hunters that, that start getting, getting up in arms about that. And, you know, they act like we're taking something away from from the locals and we're destroying. And I, I say we I've never been to Africa in my life. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they act like hunters are taking something away and you go talk to the locals. You'll, you're going to hear a very different story. And the the desire to, I guess, the desire or ability to protest against. African hunting is almost a sign of privilege rather than actual knowledge. It is because most of those people that do protest that have, have not been there and they have an understanding of how important hunting wildlife and, and is to those communities in terms of food, in terms of dollars, in terms of uh, protecting their families. I mean, uh, I think if they ever had been there, they'd have a whole totally different perspective. You know, it's kind of like we hear a lot these days about protecting the grizzly bear and, and, the, and, and, and the, the, the wolves. My deal years ago, I was asked to write a column about predation. And unfortunately it never got published because the editor goes, I can't do that. But he, they, they were asking me to write about grizzlies, wolves, mountain lions, and my solution to all this was, is by golly, let's, let's trap and relocate grizzlies and cougars and, and whatever else. And to me, you mentioned Los, you're from Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles would be a perfect place to do it. You know, <laughs> Minneapolis, you know, New York City, those, those would be the ideal places to release those. It would take care of an awful lot of problems that are, that are created in those areas by human habitation. 
and uh, I think people would have a little bit different understanding about those kind of things if we did that. <laughs> well, you know what? I'll tell you one thing. I would be super supportive of relocating mountain lions to San Francisco and to Los Angeles <laughs> because mountain lions and bobcats, just throw them out there. Like you said, it'll take care of some of our human habitation problems and it will hopefully encourage all of these people that voted to protect the poor kitty cats that were murdering. They might suddenly start changing their minds. I have a different perspective. I can assure you. <laughs> you know, I swear something about somebody voting on hunting and wildlife predation and all of that people that have never stepped foot outside their city park uh, voting on that just it makes my stomach turn. It, it does. I've, I've been very much involved with various organizations, particularly like Dallas Safari Club. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, we really would like people to understand that we have got some of the very, not some, we've got the very best wildlife biologists, wildlife scientists out there to be had. We've learned so much over the last many years in terms of protection and care and preservation and management, management being the key, because conservation is wise management, the, that these people can present. And yet sometimes we feel like, or they, they feel like that they should have the right to vote on what goes on outside of, of their community when it comes to wildlife. And it, it's very sad because if they lived the life that, and, and or even looked at the sound information that's out there, they would probably look at it totally differently. But they don't. It's it's tough, and I mean, it goes back to like you said. There's some people whose minds are just never going to be changed. No, and no. and I've had those conversations too, and they've been they've been some. I, I hesitate to call them civil. They really weren't civil. They were civil on my end. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, the other was, I hope you get killed in the forest, I believe was the other, other end of the conversation. But, uh, you know, you can present all the facts in the world, but facts are never going to trump their feelings in their mind. It no, doesn't matter. No, no, no. And it's, yeah. you know, I, don't get me wrong. Like I'm not some paragon of logic. Like I'm a, I'm an emotional dogmatic son of a bitch. Like, and they're all with that. I mean, like, you know, and and I admit, I I guarantee I have my blind spots on certain things, and I'm sure there's something some things that'll get me all heated up. So I I can't totally fault them, but they're stupid, and I want them to listen to facts. <laughs> Hey, come on. To, to, to me, I, that, I just want them to listen. That We yeah. talked earlier about, you know, you asking certain questions and all those kind of things. And I've done the same thing. I've asked questions that I knew the answer to. But my reason for doing so is to hopefully there's somebody sitting around there and hearing that and it'll make them think and make them think on their own. To me, the, the best thing that we can do in those kind of situations is provide them with as many facts as we can. And you hope that they pay a little bit of attention to those facts and let them make up their own mind. So very often we we have so many humans on this earth these days who are followers, who don't want to take the time to learn about it. They, by golly, so-and-so said it was right. So he's got to, you know, I'm not going to look at the facts. Nope. I'm just bully to go forward. And to me, the education comes in to where we present good sound facts and hopefully do it in a informative 
and getting back to some of the other stuff we we're talking about earlier in an entertaining manner to where if you can grab somebody by entertaining them a little bit and they can, again, just maybe glean one or two things out of that entertaining thing that was very important in terms from a biological perspective, maybe, or an experience perspective. And if they can remember that, then I think we can find those chinks. Those are those chinks in their armor. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we do that kind of thing, the more of those chinks we can knock off and make them think on their own rather than just accepting. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So... As we're kind of winding down, one thing I always like to end with, say somebody comes up to you wherever it may be, you know, maybe it's on a, maybe it's on a plane, you know, you've got your bloody camo. No, uh, you, you, you know, you're clearly a hunter, um, you know, and they, and they ask you, they're like, Oh man, you're a hunter. That sounds so cool. You know, maybe you're telling them some stories and they're like, gosh, I've always wanted to do that. Like I, I've always felt like it's, something I've, I've wanted to go out and do myself, but it's really intimidating. There's a lot I have to learn. I don't know anybody that does it. I, I don't know if I can go do that. How would you encourage that person? What words of wisdom would you give them? I think there are so many opportunities out there. There are a lot of great organizations now that, that actually introduced people into hunting. I, I work with the Texas Wildlife Association and was one of the founders. We, over the last bunch of years, we've taken like 35,000 kids hunting and we've taken a great number, about that same number of adults hunting. So there are organizations out there. And what I would suggest to them is that I'll first of all, try to find out where they're from. And the chances are, I may know somebody or an organization in that state that that encourages people to hunt, but also gives them an instruction. And maybe a good place to start is with hunter safety courses to where I can steer them to that place. And when they get to hunter safety, then they around people who do hunt, instructors, there's opportunities a lot of times, or they will present opportunities. And you can get some guys together, maybe that are like you, in the fact, if you're new to the hunting, they say, hey, why don't you come go with us kind of thing. So I think those kind of things, but I try to find out where they're from and then kind of steer them in a particular direction in that in that area based upon folks that I know, uh, organizations, backcountry hunters is coming on strong in a lot of that. There's so many different groups out there right now that I think can help those folks find that place to hunt and also do it in a manner to where they're not totally intimidated. Uh, we, we talked about the white-tailed deer thing a little bit earlier. We, we really pushed that white-tailed deer thing a little bit par as far as I'm concerned where of the interest in inches more so than the experience. I think we've got reached that peak and I think we're falling off the backside of that now. And so I think it's going to go back now more to where let's go deer hunting. You know, it's it's not, let's go buck hunting. Let's do these other things. Let's go deer hunting. Let's enjoy deer camp. You know, if you and I go out and we got five or six other guys, one of us shoots deer, we're going to share it between the bunch of us kind of thing. And I think we're starting to see some of that naturally just occurring, but that's where I would try to steer somebody into the fact that if, if they're new to hunting, 
how about you, how about calling this guy or how about calling that organization? And, and I think they might be able to steer you in the direction and provide you with information, but also put you as somebody else. A lot of stations have mentor program, mentor programs. So, you know, maybe we steer them to our mentor program. I think that's really important. I like, I like the idea again of just let's go deer hunting and just get out there. And it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be, you know, okay, you know, we're going after the biggest buck. We have to make the most of this tag every single time. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's one thing I want to, I want to do more of is go out and find a place where I can harvest a couple of does or maybe a a cow elk or something. And, and, you know, help again, that's part of quality, quality herd management. And it's part of fill in the freezer and it's still, an adventure. There's still stories to tell. There's still opportunities to get caught on barbed wire. And <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and tell you what we're talking about. It's like every time you go fishing, are you going to catch the biggest fish every time? Well, are me you catch the fish every time or you me? Thrilled? Yes. I'm probably going to catch the biggest fish every time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> if, if anybody's been watching my Instagram feed, it's actually, I, I legitimately, try i'm pretty sure i try to catch smaller and smaller fish every single time (laughs) to the point where it's actually it's actually hard to show them with with how small they are like there's no way to hold them and be able to see them (laughs) on either side of my hand (laughs) but you're loving every moment of it aren't you (laughs) exactly and it teaches you that's one of the things is we so often get focused on the end result and we forget to learn how to love the process of doing things and learning things and getting better. And I'm guilty of that all the dang time. I'm guilty of that. Absolutely. To me, the journey is so much more enjoyable than when you finally reach that destination kind of thing. And I think one of the things about reaching the destination too, is the second you get there, you're, you're always looking for something bigger and better. So if you're not enjoying the process, you're always going to be dissatisfied because exactly. the process never ends. No, 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 no. And that to me is what's so important and fun about the outdoors in terms of wildlife, in terms of hunting, in terms of fishing. Gets back to the fact that every time you go out, you learn something new. Sometimes you learn things very importantly about yourself as well, too. That's, yeah. I can't, I can't echo that enough. Uh, just with my own personal experience and how much I've learned about who I am and, and where my, where my faults and weaknesses are and also my strengths. And I've been surprised on both, on both fronts. I've got to say, and the, the woods will, will definitely tell you who you are very quickly. What you just said to me is a sign of a very intelligent person. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Larry, if folks wanted to uh, follow along with the adventures and everything, where can they uh, where can they find you? Well, of course, I've got the DSC Untamed Heritage uh, podcast on uh, uh, Waypoint. Also, Instagram at Larry Weissoon Outdoors, Facebook Larry Weissoon Outdoors. Uh, there's a bunch of other things I'm involved in as well too that they can get in touch with me. But those are probably the two easiest ways and. Uh, if, if they'll bear with me, I will respond to them. Sometimes I'm gone for a few days and, and I try to get away from anything electronic every once in a while. But when I return home or return where I've got the messaging, I will be back with them. <laughs> 
Fantastic. Well, I'm going to make sure to link to these pages on the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Larry, I had a blast talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me. It was truly my honor to be with you. Thank you so very much for allowing me to spend some time with you and your listeners as well. (laughs) All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Oh, that's awesome! Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.